Good morning, everybody. Um, if, I, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, my name is Gareth. Uh, I have the incredible privilege of serving on the team uh, that leads Common Ground Durbanville. Uh, for those of you wondering about the foot, um, Linda is in my life group. She's moving in four days' time. It is amazing the lengths you will go to uh, to get out of helping people move. Uh, this morning we are concluding our series on 1 Peter. We've been making our way through for the past several months. Uh, and let me just move these. I'm going to keep kicking them. Oh, thanks, Vessel. Thank you. It's always awkward. You never quite know where to put them. Um, before we dive into 1 Peter this morning, I, I just want to talk quickly about our celebration Sunday, next Sunday. Uh, this is an annual tradition, number two. We started this last year, uh, but it worked so well, we decided to make it our new annual tradition. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be celebrating our kids that are graduating to the next grades in our kids' classrooms. Uh, we are celebrating and thanking all of our volunteers. Uh, we have Roger and Nikki Haynes from Bloberg that are spending the morning with us. There's going to be jumping castles. The elders are spending all of Saturday uh, preparing food. The elders will be serving you uh, lunch, no charge, um, ice creams, jumping castles. It is going to be an absolutely amazing Sunday. There's one way that you can really help us uh, with the last bit of planning for next Sunday. And let us know if you would prefer a gourmet chicken sandwich or a gourmet roast pork sandwich. So when you leave the hall today, um, there's going to be someone at each door and they get, you can give them one of four responses. You can say with tears in your eyes, I'm not able to make next week. You can say, I have actually filled in the form and indicated my preference. Or you can say chicken, or you can say pork. Um, and that's just really going to help us in terms of catering next week. And so there'll be someone uh, at the door as you leave just to uh, help us with that. Now, on to concluding uh, 1 Peter. And funny enough, we're not actually reading the very last three verses of 1 Peter as we conclude. Um, a couple of months ago, I actually read those in the very first sermon. And the reason we did that, thank you, Vessel. Let's see if that helps. Thank you. There we go. Sheesh, people are accommodating you. Thank you. The reason we read those very last three verses is because actually in those three verses, Peter gave us the reason that he wrote this letter. So if we look at those quickly, just to kind of recap, Peter wrote, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, if you've been with us uh, for any length of time in this journey in 1 Peter, all of those things that he says there should sound so familiar. This is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. He's been talking about how we stand firm, particularly when we go through opposition, particularly when we go through suffering, because as he refers to the church in Rome as Babylon, bringing to mind how God's people were in exile in a foreign land in Babylon thousands of years before, so we too find ourselves living as aliens, as strangers, as somewhat different from the culture and people we find ourselves in, because we belong to Jesus. We 
we've been born again. And in the midst of all of this, Peter's desire is that we would have peace in a world that is opposed to Jesus that we follow and the kind of life that we live. He wants his people to have as much peace as possible in the face of opposition and be as effective for the gospel as possible. So that's been the theme of the whole book. And we're going to wrap it up this morning with Peter telling us, stand firm waiting for God's grace. His kind of final words to us in the body of his letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm, there it is, in the, in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that you would help us this morning to encounter your grace, to understand what is your true grace to each one of us in the situations that we find ourselves in, to stand firm in the faith and to wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand firm, waiting for God's grace. The first way we stand firm is we stand firm by humbling ourselves. He says, humble yourselves, therefore. The therefore comes from what Rigby preached last week. Last week, Rigby read this line, which is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is what God does. This is how God operates. If you are proud, God opposes you. If you are humble, God shows favor to you. Logical conclusion, you should humble yourself so that God can lift you up. The question becomes, how do you humble yourself? And Peter goes to a very interesting place. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Some translations actually say, casting all your anxiety. It doesn't put a full stop there. It continues the sentence because these two ideas are linked. One of the ways, and the way that Peter wants us to think about humility, is in terms of anxiety. Not necessarily where we might instinctively go when it comes to humility. Now, let me just say, for the next couple of moments, I'm going to be talking about anxiety, anxiety about our future, our finances, our children, all the ways that we struggle with anxiety. And we've got to, in the midst of that, just acknowledge that sometimes anxiety comes along with depression in a clinical sense, and human beings are complex beings. We are both physical and spiritual, 
And so particularly if you or someone you love struggles with clinical depression and anxiety, there's more to the story than what Peter's going to relate here because he's not a medical doctor. He's talking about the spiritual side of things. We cannot just simply focus on that and ignore the physical side of things if you actually struggle with depression and anxiety. So please filter what I'm saying with that lens in mind. Having said that, we do have to consider why does Peter talk about anxiety in the context of humbling ourselves? If to humble ourselves is to cast our anxiety onto God, that must mean that to the extent that we are anxious, bearing in mind what I've just said about medical conditions, to the extent that we are, in, 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 that we are anxious, we are not humbling ourselves. And that's a very interesting thought. Just thinking through Vessel opening the meeting this morning, talking about the time of year. And we're all anxious to get to the holidays because then we finally get the break that we need and we, we finally get some of the stress and the, and the anxiety of this current season, of the franticness and busyness of the end of the year and the accumulation of the year taken away from us for a little bit of time. And sometimes we can live towards this time of year just going, man, 15th, 16th of December, what day did Cyril give us? We get an extra one. You know, that is coming. Thank you, Uncle Cyril. That is coming, and then I can breathe, and then I can relax. And the extent to which we do that just reveals that we haven't humbled ourselves. Why would that be? Well, he says here, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Throughout the Old Testament, the Bible speaks about God's mighty hand in the context of the deliverance of his people. The most common place it talks about it is God delivering his people out of Egypt. God's mighty hand overthrowing the false gods of the Egyptians. God's mighty hand parting the Red Sea so that the Israelites can cross on dry ground and then bringing the sea back to wipe out the army of Pharaoh. God's mighty hand speaks of the fact that he is the one who redeems and rescues his people and therefore to the extent that we are anxious we're not believing that we're not believing the gospel to the extent that we're anxious we are not realizing that it is only God's mighty hand that is able to change our circumstances and our situation and bring us through them and instead we feel if only there was something we could do even if that something is just get to the 14th, 15th, 16th of December so that we can finally just breathe and we miss the gospel that God is the one who redeems and rescues us, that God is the one who comes through in every situation, and we miss that he cares for us. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Listen to this and receive faith. He who did not spare his only son how much more will he not also, along with him, graciously give you all things? If God did not hold back 
to the point that he gave the most precious gift in the universe, his son Jesus, how can we possibly think he would hold back on anything else? How could we think that? We do though. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is that I would lose none that he has given me, but I would raise them up on the last day. Your future is secure. I kind of picture on the one hand, you're in Jesus' hand, and on the other hand, God's mighty hand is over you, shielding you and protecting you and ready to redeem and rescue you, and instead, we hold on to anxiety because at some level, we don't believe that. And so often we approach this topic of anxiety as if it's about like a, like a behavior change. Like if I could just learn not to be anxious. Anxiety is not a matter of behavior. It is a matter of humility and the gospel and faith. It's not about learning not to be anxious. It's about understanding God's mighty hand and his care for you. How do you cast your anxiety onto Jesus? You know, it's so possible I preach this and we walk out of here and oh, that was so good. Uh, I need to cast my anxiety onto Jesus, but you actually don't know how to do it. That's not helpful at all. Well, the beautiful thing is when Peter says, cast your anxiety onto God, he's actually referencing Psalm 55. And in Psalm 55, we have a beautiful example of David doing exactly that. So I'm going to just quickly read through Psalm 55, pointing out one or two things so that we can learn what does it look like to cast our anxieties onto Jesus. Linda, you do an amazing job. I know you journal everything. I don't journal. I'm just not a journaler. Maybe some of you as well, you journal your anxieties. That's a beautiful way of casting them onto God. You, you write them down and trust them to God and, and you're specific and you name them. Maybe for some of you, that's a beautiful way to do it. I, I've just never been able to do that. For me, it's in prayer. Let's read Psalm 55. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me and I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked. For they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and storm. He starts off declaring his need for God. Lord, won't you hear my prayer? Don't, don't ignore my plea, God. That's the first part of casting your anxieties onto God, is acknowledging your need, acknowledging your need for his mighty hand to come and deliver you. He acknowledges his need. He acknowledges his fear and where he's at. The psalm is full of David's emotion of him unburdening his heart, of unpacking his soul, of the things that he is feeling inside of him. He literally brings all of that to God. That's casting your anxieties onto God. God, I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I don't know which way to turn. I've got this decision in front of me. I don't know if I should go left. I don't know if I should go right. God, this financial situation I find myself in, I don't see a way through. I'm in fear. I'm in anguish. I can't sleep at night. That's what David is doing. 
Lord, confuse the wicked, confound their words, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers. Lord, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. He gets specific about what he is asking God for. Confuse the wicked. He looks around and he sees, as the king, it's his concern how the city goes. He looks around and he sees, and he says, Lord, won't you come and confound the wicked? Won't you, won't you thwart their plans? Won't you stop what is happening? It's not just strangers. It seems that someone close to him has betrayed him. Lord, won't you come and intervene on my behalf? He starts off declaring his need for God. He unpacks his heart to God. He specifically asks God for what he needs. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. Do you see the shift that happens when you do this? He goes from focusing on this person who's betrayed him, declares his need for God, unpacks his situation to God, asks God specifically to intervene, and then he starts to think about this God that he's asked to intervene. He thinks about how God has been faithful to him over and over again. God who is enthroned from of old. He begins to see the beauty, the magnificence, the glory, the sheer size of this God that he is praying to, and everything shifts. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. He begins to think about the other people that have been hurt by this person that has betrayed him. And here's what he says to them. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He says, do what I've just done. That's helped me to come to the realization that God cares for me and it is his mighty hand that rescues me. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken, but you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their lives, but as for me, I trust in you. That's what it looks like. Whether it's a journal, whether it's prayer, whether it's in worship, your need for God, understanding and declaring your need for God, being specific about the situation you find yourself in, including in your own heart, being specific about what you're asking God for so that you can see the bigness of God and then be able to see beyond yourself and call others to cast their burdens onto God. That's how we stand firm. Secondly, we stand firm by resisting the devil. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. I find it so interesting 
that kind of the two major parts of the, the letters to the churches that deals with Satan come right at the end of those letters. It's, it's here in 1 Peter and it's Ephesians. It comes right at the end of the letter. And I think there's something significant in that. It's important that we understand that the devil is our enemy, but I think it's also important that we don't focus on that. I think that's why both Peter and Paul wait until right to the end to even mention him because they're focusing on Jesus. They're focusing on the gospel. They're focusing on what God has done. They're focusing on the church. And don't forget there is also an enemy. That's not to downplay the role of the devil, but it's to put him in his right place. He roars around like a lion. The devil means the adversary and the accuser. He comes in and he accuses you. He accuses you with regard to your standing before God. Maybe right now for some of you, he's accusing you. Maybe right now some of you have been struggling with anxiety and you're going, oh my goodness, that shows I'm not humbling myself before God. That shows that I'm not believing the gospel properly. Satan will take that opportunity to come and say, yeah, yeah, your faith is not that great. Your faith is not really real. You probably shouldn't go to life group because you know they get, people might ask you about this and then you'd have to tell them and, and that would suck. And, and, and you kind of get into this malaise where you're like, oh, I don't really want to go to church because I felt guilty the last time I went to church because it just made me realize you know, the areas where I'm falling short. And so, yeah, wake up next Sunday. Ah, just going to skip church this time because I felt horrible last time. That is the work of the enemy. That's how he seeks to derail us. He's going to roar at you, accusing you. We're to be alert and of sober mind, understanding how he operates. It's kind of the opposite of drunkenness is the word for alertness that Paul uses here. Be aware of your surroundings, basically. Be aware of what is going on around you, not just oblivious, stumbling through the world, unaware of how the devil will choose to try to derail you. Stand firm, resist him, standing firm in your faith. Notice it doesn't say that you've got to cast him out, call him names, find the right incantation to stop him. Resist him, standing firm. It's also not just do nothing and ignore him. C.S. Lewis says the two great traps that the devil puts us in is number one, to disbelieve his existence. That's where we're not alert and sober-minded. The other trap is to overplay his role and to make him out to be so much worse and to feel we've got to do all these crazy things against him. But somewhere in the middle, we can sometimes go, oh, okay, I'm aware of him and I'm just going to kind of ignore him. That's not what Peter says. Resist him. There's an active component to this. How do you resist him? Standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the faith. I emphasize that word very deliberately because the way we sometimes read that is we can read that as standing firm in my faith. My faith has to be strong enough to resist the devil. That is not what Peter is saying. Standing firm in the faith. The faith is the truth of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That the dominion of sin has been broken in your life. That there is no accusation that Satan can bring, even if you've been struggling through the roof with anxiety, that can separate you from God. 
That is the faith. It's not about what you are able to muster up inside of you. It is actively confessing the truths of the gospel. I don't feel like going to church today because I felt bad last time because I realized my sin. Actually, no, I get to celebrate in worship the reality that I am forgiven and there is no accusation that can come against me. There is an activeness to this that I think we sometimes miss. It's going, this is how I feel right now, and I'm going to speak the gospel to the situation to myself. I forget which psalm it is, but David says in the psalms, why do you say, oh, my heart? Literally, what is going on inside of me that I'm not believing the gospel? There's an activeness to this when Satan wants to come to you and derail you and stop you from standing firm and accuse you and tell you those people probably don't love you and they wouldn't love you if they knew who you really were. No, God knows you inside and out and loved you enough to give his son for you. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from that. And it's brilliant to hear this on a Sunday morning. Here's the deal. It won't sustain you. What will sustain you is when you begin to resist him, when you begin to speak the truths of the gospel. This is the reminder. This is the provocation for what you need to do. But if the only time you're hearing the gospel is on a Sunday morning, you're not going to stand firm because you're not resisting the devil. My relief is coming at the end of the year on the 14th, 15th, 16th of December. No. No. That's the lie that I've believed. My relief is here because Jesus has rescued me. And the pressures that I am feeling, I don't even probably even need to feel because sin has been taken away. And I am right with God. And I am born again. And I am in his family. Nothing can take that away. And he cares for me. And his hand is over me. Some of you, maybe the lie of the devil is, does God really care for me? Is his powerful hand really at work in my life? Speak the truths of the faith to that. Don't live in that lie. If you are wondering, does God care for me? A big part of the answer is to tell yourself the truths of the faith that you know to be real. Don't allow yourself to live under the accusation of the enemy. This is what love is, not that we loved but that he loved us and gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice of sin. Of course he loves me. He's demonstrated it in sending Jesus to the cross. I cannot doubt that. You have to speak that to yourself to actively resist what Satan will come and accuse you with, casting your anxieties onto him. Stand firm because God's grace is coming soon. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Thank you, Linda. You just absolutely demonstrated that verse this morning. And I know it was a long season. And in the middle of those seasons, it can be really hard to see that. But that was a beautiful demonstration of what this verse says. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. How long is a little while? I don't know. Peter doesn't say. 
will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Some of you might be saying, Gareth, that little while has been a really long time for me. The contrast of the little while is with the eternal glory in Christ. You see, we might say, well, a year is not a little while that I've been going through this. Five years is not a little while that I've been going through this. 20 years is not a little while that I have been going through this. You say to me, in a little while, God himself will restore and make me strong and firm and steadfast. That hasn't happened. It's been more than a little while. Scripture would say, actually, that's still a little while. Because it's not a little while in contrast with six months or three months or one day. It is a little while in contrast with eternity. It's a little while in contrast to what he's ultimately called us to. And so we stand firm in the midst of difficulty. Remember, throughout this book, what we've seen is that much of following Jesus is actually learning to respond like Jesus when we're facing persecution, when we're facing suffering, when we're facing opposition. That is much of the walk of following Jesus because it's when we respond in godly ways to difficult situations and to opposition that the gospel is on display and some will be saved. And so we miss the point and we think, because some Christians in other parts of the world have told us this, that following Jesus is supposed to be all financial freedom and having no problems in our lives and everything always going well for us. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the gospel is on display when Jesus is reviled and does not revile in return and when we do the same. Not to say that all of life is suffering. That's not what I'm saying. But Scripture says we are not to be surprised when they oppose us because they opposed him. Is the follower greater than the teacher? You'll go through what I will go through is what Jesus said. And so we will face opposition, but we will also have times when God will come in and restore and make us strong and firm and steadfast. We don't know the timing, but it is a little while because we can stand firm knowing that God's grace outlasts all of our sufferings into eternity. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He has the power. He's seated in heaven. He's seated on the throne. He has overcome Satan, sin, and death. He's defeated everything that would separate you from him. He's defeated everything that could overcome you. He's broken the power of sin in your life. He's called you into his family and he has his eternal glory in Christ waiting for you. Don't be surprised that these things happen. Know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. But what he has in store for us is an eternal weight of glory that outweighs everything that we are going through. And so we have to learn to cast our anxieties onto him. Go read Psalm 55. Rewrite it in your own words if you're facing anxiety. 
and you just don't know how to overcome it. Just rewrite it. Look at what David says. Starts off declaring his need for God. In your own words, declare your need for God. Starts off with the anxiety and the anxiousness in his heart. Write it out. The specific things that you're asking God for. Pray it out. Remember who God is and what he's done. Don't allow the devil to come in and lie to you. Actively resist him by speaking the faith. Even if you're struggling to feel it for yourself, it's not about your faith. It is the gospel. Understand that in a little while, God's grace will come through for you. And it is only a little while because his eternal glory is ahead of you. Let's pray the band can come up. Father, as we approach this end of the year season where our anxieties can become amplified and when our search for relief can so often be anywhere but on you, won't you help us to cast our anxieties onto you? Won't you just remind us this week? So often we just forget because we don't have the habit of it. Why don't you just remind us this week, wait a second, I'm feeling anxiety. I know what I need to do about this, Gareth. Told me on Sunday, this is what I need to do. Won't you help us to stand firm in the faith when the enemy would come and roar his accusations at us? I want to pray for those that are waiting for your grace to break through, that you would come and break through and restore and make firm. I want you to help us to have the correct perspective that even if the grace is not this week, this month, or this year, it is but a little while because of the eternal weight of glory in Christ that you have waiting for us. In Jesus' name, amen.